morning, everybody. We're so glad that you are with us today. If you will, reach for the Bible or hopefully with the Matthew journal that you are bringing with you. If not, we have them out at the exits and down in kind of our fellowship space, the Williams Center. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And while you are turning there, let me remind you that we are walking chapter by chapter, week by week, slowly, methodically, systematically through the story of the gospel that is done through the witness of the person of Matthew. And we get to kind of a strange inflection point in this story and in this experience. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you. Back when I was a junior in high school, I took on a part-time job as a tennis teaching assistant and working in the pro shop of a local country club. And while I was there on the first week of the job, the tennis shop had these just huge windows. And the tennis pro beckoned me over and he said, uh, we're going to clean those windows. And by saying we're going to clean those windows, he meant I was going to clean those windows. And, uh, and I said, well, where's the Windex? And he said, I don't believe in any of that stuff. And so there on the floor was a bucket with some soapy water in it and a rag and one of those little squeegees that kind of you use sometimes to wipe the front of your car when you're cleaning the windshield of your car. And, and I, I kind of looked at the window and looked at this and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. And so he used the rag and he cleaned the window and then he took the squeegee and it was like something out of like the Karate Kid movie where it's like, and it just like all of a sudden the window was clean. And then he's like, okay, you do it. And of course, I tried it, and it was a royal mess. It's dripping everywhere. And he showed me one more time, and then he, he let me just practice over and over and over again. What I discovered through the two years that I, I worked at that pro shop was a consistent pattern of what that teaching pro would do with me throughout all those years and through a variety of different activities, giving me more and more responsibility along the way. He would start with something, and he would say, I'm going to do it, and you're going to watch. And then, after a little while, he would say, you're going to do it, and I'm going to watch. And that was particularly true of cleaning the windows. And this is a phrase that I came to learn later in business school that kind of originates with Peter Drucker, one of the management gurus. And, and it's one of those things where there comes a point where you are no longer just an observer, but you're the one who is now doing what you have been trained and equipped in order to do it. That is the inflection point that we find ourselves in the Gospels, that for the first nine chapters, Jesus has been doing a lot of activities, and the disciples are just kind of sitting there, and they're nodding their heads, and they're, they're like, yeah, amen, Jesus, you go, Jesus, you're doing great, Jesus, and all of a sudden, now in chapter 10, Jesus is like, okay, guys, you're going to do it, and they're like, wait, what? And he is about to commission them as his disciples on mission. Now, what we've seen in the pattern of Matthew is that Matthew is Jesus talks and instructs, and then he does something, and then he talks and he instructs, and then he does something, and now he is shifting to equip the disciples for them to be on mission. And so, in essence, what we've noticed here is that there's a Gospel 101 and there's a Gospel 201. Gospel 101, through the famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, and then chapters 8 and 9 being the follow-up. In other words, Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount about the kingdom of God and what it looks like. Then he demonstrates it in chapters 8 and 9. And then starting here in chapter 10, he gives us 
and this is not branded this way except from a biblical commentator, it's, it's another sermon, but it's the Sermon on Mission. And this is one of those parts of the Bible that if we weren't systematically walking through it because it's hard and it's convoluted and it's complicated, we probably would just kind of skip right over this. But we're not going to skip over stuff this year. We're going to walk through it all, even if it's complicated and difficult. And so the best way to understand kind of this chapter that I want to help equip you on is that there's the kind of the vocation side of it. There's the call of mission, and then there's the instructions of mission. And we're going to see each of these two kind of sections in play. But first we're going to talk about the call to mission, and we're going to back up a little bit, starting our reading in chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. As we dive into today's passage, one of the things that we're going to discover is that you can't be a student of Jesus without being on mission with Jesus. Let me see if I can tell you a story that helps unpack this. This is a famous image here up on a screen of a school at Harvard University. And there was a recent graduate of Harvard University in one of their master's program, a student by the name of Peter. And Peter was connected to a faculty member who was also a part of Harvard, and they knew each other through a Christian fellowship. And so Peter had graduated, and four months had passed by, and the professor now at this point was coming in to order a quick meal from a McDonald's that's located up in Cambridge in that area. And to the professor's surprise, when he got to the counter, he noticed that the person who was actually taking his order was none other than his former student, Peter. And because you might guess that people with master's degrees from Harvard don't tend to work counter service in fast food restaurants, that the professor was kind of uh, surprised, kind of taken aback, and, and was basically like, what are you doing here? And it was interesting because Peter said, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. I, I have a plan. I know what's coming. I'm waiting for certain things to come together, but I needed money, so I was going to work. And, and he's like, you need to understand that these last couple of months have been amazing here. They're amazing in the sense of there's one guy from Sri Lanka. There's another guy from over here. There's a Hindu. There's a Buddhist. There's an atheist. There's, there's another guy from El Salvador, El Salvador who's a fellow believer. He's like, I am in the middle of a mission field and I get to ask people in the midst of demonstrating God's goodness, I get to ask people if they want fries with that mission. <laughs> Here was Peter 
who was working a job that many of us would consider to be beneath us, and yet he didn't see his job that way because he saw it through the prism, through the lens of that God had him on mission every single day. Do you have that perspective for you as a student, as somebody who is a part of a neighborhood, for somebody who's a part of a workplace or somebody in management? Do you see each and every day what you do through that lens of, I am on mission with God? Because we believe and the Bible teaches us that you cannot be a student of Jesus without following him as his apprentice to the call of mission. And in the passage that we read just a few moments ago, we get to see some of the dimensions of that call. That first of all, that there is the motive of that mission. The motive of mission for you to be sent out is never anger or hurt or distrust, or needing to be right, or needing to win, the motive for mission is always healing compassion. The two words that repeat over and over again is that Jesus is on a ministry of healing, and that what moves within him is compassion as he engages in the mission. People will often say, I don't I don't know what my mission is. I mean, like, Rich, you have a mission, you're, you're leading a church, and I'm like, no, no, no. All of us have that permission within the Great Commission. The question is, what is it that you're called to participate in in God's mission? And people sometimes spin their wheels and stare at themselves in the mirror trying to figure that out. We make this way overcomplicated than it is. The way that Jesus helped to send them out to try mission, to start to figure it out. You're not going to figure it all out and then go. You're going to figure it out as you go. And the way that you get started is you look for a place, God, where can I be a healing presence? God, where is my heart moved in compassion for people? The image in the motive for compassion is that of people who are harassed and helpless. If you can find somebody who needs help, if you can find somebody who's being mistreated, you have just discovered a mission field. And so, God, how can I bring your healing compassion and help to share it in this situation? That's always the motive for mission getting started. The second dimension of the call of mission or the vocation of mission is the need of mission. There's a famous phrase here, and I'm going to start it, and you finish it. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Now, you and I don't spend a lot of time with agricultural image, but you need to understand what this image tells us is that the planting has been done, that the watering, the tending, the pruning, all of the hard work, all of the time has been happening. And then there are these key moments where you need a lot of people to show up to be able to bring the harvest in to be able to have it come to pass and to bring it into the safety of the storehouse. This is the image that Jesus and Matthew are using in describing how we need to be available to God in mission. You're not the one who's done all the work. I have a lot of people tell me, I'm not equipped, I'm not gifted, I can't do all of that stuff. It's like, no, harvesting is really straightforward. You are just bringing in what God has already done. And so again, we tend to overthink these types of things. The need for mission is that not enough people see themselves as laborers in the field of God's goodness. 
And so you have the motive for mission, which is always healing compassion. You have the need of mission in the sense of that the church isn't activated. People don't see themselves as working in partnership with God. Then you have the method of mission, and you're not going to like this part. The method of mission is not, let me do my discernment and then figure out where I feel called to serve, and then maybe I'll grace God with my presence by showing up when I feel like it. No, the method of mission, the word that God uses in Jesus and Matthew and the other gospel writers use to send people out in mission is the very same term that Jesus uses to cast out the demons. I told you you weren't going to like this part. Jesus throws you out into mission, whether you're ready for it or not, whether you feel trained for it or not. He is intentionally shoving you, throwing you beyond your comfort zone at a time when you may not even feel like you are ready. And we have a lot of excuses, and you're like, I don't want to feel equipped for that. You've probably heard the phrase before, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called. And so he's going to send you out. He's going to push you in over your head and make you get to the point where you are uncomfortable so that you once again are learning to be his student in a whole new way. He throws us out into mission. And so the motive of mission is healing compassion. The need of mission is for us to activate as his laborers. The method of mission is to just move and go and be responsive to that call. And then there's the power of mission. When he says the harvest is plentiful and that the laborers are few, he doesn't say then go. He says then pray earnestly. In other words, the action that we're called to do is not just to move, but also to be a people of prayer. So much of why mission fails is because we do not stay tethered to the one in whom we are serving and working. And so we need to be the kind of people that know as we go, we are also driven to our knees. And one of the things that you may encounter, as I do, is that when you get in out of your, over your head, you are the kind of thing, it's the kind of thing that does draw you to your knees. And so we pray. And finally, then, there is the rule of mission. The rule of mission is did you notice that when I was reading the passage that I accentuated the conjunction in between the different names? Simon and Judas, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Notice he doesn't give them titles. He calls them by name and he always calls them together. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. A couple of years ago when uh, Kelly and I were celebrating in 2019 our 20th wedding anniversary, we got together with another couple and we went to this horribly unbeautiful place. This is Banff Canadian Rockies because we follow Jesus not only into beauty but to golf courses. There's a golf course there off to the right and uh, we got to do a whole lot of hiking and you could even hike all the way up to places like this with these phenomenal glaciers. Now, one of the things that we discovered as we were hiking almost every day in the Canadian Rockies is that the Canadian Parks Authority actually has a lot of rules with regards to hiking, one of which is a rule that's in conjunction with a little fact that they have grizzly bears up there. And they call it the rule of four. 
And this rule is in play because they've discovered that grizzly attacks almost never happen if you were in a group of four or more people. And so if you are hiking alone, if you're hiking with one other person, or if you're hiking with a third person, you can get fined for hiking in certain regions without having a complete group. The fine is $25,000 if you were caught hiking without a group of four. What if we took this more seriously in the church? Jesus, in a hyper-individualized age, is never about, I'm going to just send you. How much more would we accomplish? What would we do if we were willing to put the conjunction back into our discipleship? If we were willing to work in fellowship? I actually don't believe that we have a compassion problem. I don't think it's that our hearts are apathetic or callous and that's not why we're willing to serve more and to help more and to be in God's kingdom and mission more. I think we have primarily an isolation problem, not a compassion problem. And because we're isolated, because we're not together, we don't serve, we don't help. Imagine if you had a group of two or four and you're like, we're going to help that family. We're going to help that individual. We're going to serve in that way. We're going to try something that we've never tried before. When we are together, we have the courage and the tenacity to be able to do mission in a whole new way. And one of the devil's greatest schemes in today's world is to diminish mission by isolating us as individuals. And so here we have the call to mission. And secondly, then Jesus provides in this chapter a whole lot of instructions on mission. If you will, pull out your bulletin that you got on the way in and turn with me to an outline. I don't normally put outlines in the bulletin, but we've got a whole lot of things for you to get to see here. This passage gets broken out into, on the instructions, three different sections that are broken up by a phrase. And this comes from a biblical commentator by the name of Dale Bruner. It says, amen, I say to you. That's how you know that there are these kind of three distinct sections that repeat in verses 15, 23, and 42 to close out these three different sections. And how Dale Bruner talks about it is that Jesus provides travel instructions for mission, he provides trouble instructions for mission, and he provides trust instructions for mission. Now, I only have eight minutes left in this sermon, and I've got 15 points, so bear with me for a little bit here. So notice here under travel instructions, this is going to feel more like a lesson than it is like a traditional service. Are you ready? Travel instructions. This is the instructions of what do you do when it's time for you to go, when you need to activate. He says, stay close. He doesn't want you to go too far. Eventually, he's going to send you to the ends of the earth for us as a church, but you're just supposed to go to a neighboring town. You're not supposed to start with going to Africa, okay? Then you're to stay on message. That's to stay on the message of the kingdom of God and the healing message that he's called us to. Stay simple. Don't overcomplicate this. You're not supposed to bring too much. You're supposed to show up and be yourself and be present with others. To stay peaceful. This is not meant to be coerced. This is not meant to be forced. And to stay receptive. How do you do when someone rejects you? How do you shake the dust off your feet? How do you respond when someone doesn't respond well to you? Those are some of the travel initial instructions that Jesus provides. Then you get to trouble instructions. And trouble 
rebel instructions are what do you do when things get hard, when there's persecution or resistance. We're to stay vulnerable. We're like sheep before wolves. We're to stay gentle. We're wise as serpents, but we're gentle as doves. We're to stay resilient. We're not to call to give up. We're to stay available, that the Spirit will work through us, that we're to stay nimble. You're not necessarily supposed to stay in a place just because it's hard. Sometimes it's the right thing for you to do, to move on. And so you have travel instructions, you have trouble instructions, and you have trust instructions that sometimes we need to learn that we have to renew our trust in God, to not be afraid, to know our value, that God cares for you like the hairs on your head, to put God first, to be willing to lose, to lose your life in order to find it, and to serve the vulnerable, that that image that Jesus has in this text of even a cold cup of water. There you go, 15 points in two minutes or less. Have you got all that? Okay, the reason I go through all of that is I want you to take this with you. I don't know where you are in your missionary journey. I don't know if you're like, I need some traveling instructions because I need to get activated. Then you ought to look at those instructions and what do you need to pay attention to. Maybe you're the kind of person that's serving and you feel like you're in the midst of some resistance. And in the midst of that mission, you need to be encouraged and reminded that just because things aren't going as you expected them to go, that it doesn't mean that you're not at the very center of God's will. Or maybe you need some trust instructions. Maybe what's holding you back in mission is you haven't, that, you're, that you're, you're stuck by fear or you're stuck by not knowing who you really are before God and your own worth or value or, or you're putting God second or third on your list and not first and so, so you're not willing to go and you need to renew your trust in Almighty God. And so I give this to you because Matthew chapter 10 is the kind of chapter that because this is complicated and because this is a little difficult, and we don't like to challenge our people, a, a lot of the times you would skip Matthew chapter 10. But we're not doing that. I want you to feel equipped and to understand how God is calling you on a mission and he's desperately wanting us to partner together to live that out. Here's an image of a famous race that takes place up in Alaska. This is known as the Iditarod. And it's over a thousand miles long beginning in Anchorage, Alaska. And by dog sled, they go all the way to Nome, a thousand miles over ice and snow. Back in 1925, when they started this race, it started for a very particular reason. There was a diphtheria epidemic that was taking place. And in Nome, Alaska, there were hundreds of children who had contracted and been exposed to diphtheria and their lives were in jeopardy. They had the serum in Anchorage, but they had to get that serum to Nome. And so they coordinated together a glorified relay race of dog sled after dog sled after dog sled, and in 127 hours had gone the entire thousand mile journey to bring that life-saving medication to that community in need. You know they still do the Iditarod race, right? but it's not connected to the life-saving mission anymore. Now it's just a sporting contest. 
And if we're not careful, that can happen to us. It can happen to a church. Where you still gather and cheer. You still train. You still have the same course. But you've lost your mission. You've lost your purpose. If we're not careful, this can be just one more activity of entertainment or self-actualization and a church can lose that core life-saving mission. My friends, we are still called to give healing compassion on mission to this community and beyond. But it's easy to lose. And it just becomes the game of church getting it right, whose church is doing better than another church. I don't know about you, but I want to be in the life-saving business. And I believe that these callings of Jesus, these teachings of Jesus, that the Bible is a book about disciples to make disciples. And that he is still calling us as his apprentices. And he has given us a little portion of that life-saving mission. And the invitation to you is will you take that message to heart? Will you heed his instructions? Will you gather with a fellow believer? And will you serve the world even if it means serving at the counter of a McDonald's. We'll have to train. We'll have to learn to do things that we haven't learned before. We'll have to watch Jesus carefully. But then there's a moment where Jesus says, you do, I watch. And let's pray. We thank you, O oh God, that you are still in the life-saving business and that you are calling us even now to receive your instruction and to put it into practice. Forgive us for making discipleship the kind of thing where we just learn and say that's nice and instead equip and empower and inspire us for not just the Sermon on the Mount and learning things about you in the kingdom of God, but help us to now listen to your sermon on mission. Forgive us, O oh God, for not seeing everyone and everywhere as an opportunity to be able to live on mission with you. Take away our anger and our disgust and our desire to be right or to win and leave us only with a healing compassion for those who are like sheep without a shepherd. Activate us to know that the harvest is ready and that all we need to do is to show up and to be a part of what you're already at work doing. Throw us out of our churches, shove and summon us into the world, and may we fall to our knees as we go. Call us by name. Help us to live with the conjunctions of being united to one another in friendship. And take the diversity of what is your church in the world, and two by two, or as a rule of four, send us out to do things that we never thought that were possible. And so God, help us to learn to trust you even when things get trouble and help us to be willing to travel and to go even when we'd rather stay. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.